0: Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5. Um, Can we bring the lights up a little bit more? I think it seems dark. There we go. Can you see your Bibles now? Okay. That's good. Galatians chapter 5. As we begin our time this morning, I want to draw your attention back to two of what I think are probably the greatest acts of idolatry in the Old Testament where human beings came together and tried to produce something with their own hands. Do you remember the Tower of Babel all the way back in Genesis chapter 11? In Genesis chapter 11 verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. This is a determined resolve by the people to, with their own imagination, with their own hands, say, God, we want to be greater than you. We want to make a name for ourselves, so we're going to build a tower to the heavens in honor of ourselves. And what does God do? God looks down at the puny little tower and Basically, in judgment, scatters them and confuses their language at the Tower of Babel. It was an attempt to create something with their own hands to exalt themselves above God. The Tower of Babel. The second greatest act of idolatry in the Old Testament, I believe, was the fashioning of the golden calf in the book of Exodus. Do you remember that story? Moses had gone up on the mountain. He'd been there 40 days and 40 nights, and the people are getting antsy. The people are getting anxious. Where's this Moses guy? Why hasn't he come back down the mountain? And so they go to Aaron and say, Aaron, we need to make gods to lead us to the promised land. And so Aaron capitulates to the request, and then you've got in Exodus chapter 32, 3 and 4. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. In both the Tower of Babel and the Golden Calf, it was humans' attempts to create something with their hands to exalt themselves as God or to replace God. And it started in their imaginations. And so these acts of idolatry, we can call the works of the flesh. The works of the flesh. Things they were trying to do in their own power, in their own strength, with their own hands to sin. Last week, Paul clearly showed us in verse 17 that there is an intense battle going on in the life of every believer. There's a battle between your remaining flesh and the Holy Spirit who has now come to live inside of you. There's this battle going on. And we talked about how you're never going to fully be free of that battle until you step foot into heaven, but that, that flesh can be weakened through the means of grace. When you do personal Bible reading, when you pray, when you fellowship, when you're in accountability, when you're growing, that can be weakened In your life, and so for this morning, Paul's going to get very specific with us. He's going to get very specific by giving us a list of 15 sins that show us the power of that remaining flesh inside of us. So let's read together, Galatians chapter 5. I want us to read back where we started last week. So let's look at verse 16 because it's it's all in context of the same flow of thought. So Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now here's the big point that Paul is driving home for us to understand from this passage of scripture. It's not politically correct and it's going to be kind of a hard blow to you, but I think that's Paul's point. Here's the point. You won't get into heaven if you continue in a lifestyle of habitual and unrepentant sin. You won't get into heaven if you continue in a lifestyle of habitual and unrepentant sin. Now we see three important truths from this passage of scripture about the dangers of gratifying the flesh. So here's the first. First of all, we see the stark evidence of sin. The stark evidence of sin. Notice in verse 19, Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. They're clearly known. They're as plain as day. In other words, you don't have to be a nuclear scientist to figure out what sin is. You know by experience, you know what the word of God says, you know what sin is. And interestingly, here, Paul calls these the works of the flesh. Why works of the flesh? Well, just like we saw in the Tower of Babel and the Golden Calf, works of the flesh are anything that you do with your mind, with your hands, with your mouth. It comes out of your heart that are ungodly, that are not from the Holy Spirit, that are sinful. Next week, we're going to see how the works of the flesh stand in contrast to the fruit of the Spirit. But these are anything that you produce in your flesh that are ungodly, that are sinful, that are devoid of the Holy Spirit. They're they're products of your fallen nature, of your own conniving, manipulative mind. Anything you attempt to do that's sinful, selfish, prideful, the works of the flesh. Couple things we need to know about works of the flesh. First thing you need to know about works of the flesh is this you are a sinner first, and that leads you to commit actual sins. You see, the reason you do works of the flesh is because your nature is that of being a sinner. Now, you, you're saved by grace and the Holy Spirit has come and lived inside of you, but you still have what's called indwelling sin. You still have remaining sin. You still have the flesh. And from that heart come the actual outward actions of sins. And Jesus says this in Mark chapter 7, 20 through 23. He said, Jesus, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, and Jesus is going to give a list here that's very similar to Paul's list. Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So you still have remaining sin living in you, and it's, it's, it's battling with the, the Holy Spirit, and those, those internal desires are what cause you to do works of the flesh. They come out in actual actions. And so you can't just explain away the works of the flesh as, oh, it's just a personality quirk. It's just a weakness. It's something that I, I, I kind of, I, I can't help myself. No, Paul says the works of the flesh are evident. They're works of the flesh. They're not personality quirks. They're not just weaknesses here and there. These are actual sins that come from our heart. So you can't plead ignorance this morning that you don't know what these are. Paul says, listen, you can't plead ignorance. The works of the flesh are evident. They're plain. You know what they are. You can't say, I didn't know. That's the first thing you need to know about the works of the flesh. The second thing you need to know about the works of the flesh is this. The reason Paul gives a list here is so you can examine yourselves based upon the list. So before we even begin this morning, we're going to look at a list of 15 sins. And you right now need to begin asking the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, will you examine my heart deeply to see what is there And ask the Lord to begin to expose these things to you because they are evident. Now, just because they're evident doesn't mean that we always see them clearly because sometimes they're they're buried so deeply within us. Psalm 119, 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The word of God is going to light our path this morning so that we're not in ignorance But this is what all of you should be praying right now. Psalm 139. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. This should be your prayer. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Holy Spirit, search my heart. Am I guilty? Of these works of the flesh. And if so, would you expose those? Would you show those to me? Would would the word come like a light to my path and expose my heart this morning? So Paul says, these are evident. They're plain as day. That's the first thing he says. So you can't plead ignorance this morning that you didn't know what the works of the flesh are. Here's the second big-ticket item this morning. We see the sinister list of sins. Fifteen of them to be exact, okay? Now, you may wonder, okay, Paul just said the works of the flesh are evident. Shouldn't he have just like gone on the next verse and not listed them? If they're evident, why do I have to list them? If they're evident, why give a list of 15 sins? Well, I think the reason Paul gives us a list is actually God's grace in your life. God gets very specific with this list so that you can know exactly what his will is for you and why you shouldn't be breaking these things. So the list, it's not an exhaustive list of all the sins that you could commit, but it's a representative list. And so what this list of 15 sins does for us is it shows us in graphic detail what God's plan is for our lives. Now, these are divided up into four categories. So you got 15 sins, but they're they're kind of grouped into four categories that are similar types of sins. So what's the first category that Paul categorizes these sins? The first are sins of sexual immorality. I find it interesting that in almost every one of Paul's lists, sexual sins make the top of the list. And the very first word there, Verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident. First on the list, porneia. So we get our word pornography. It's the, it's the Greek word porneia, which means, let me just define it for you in case there's any confusion, okay? Because we live in a wacky world where people are saying anything and everything goes. Let me just tell you what the word means so there's no confusion. Any illicit Sex that's not between one man and one woman in a legal covenant marriage. Sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, homosexual um, activity, bisexual activity, bestiality, incest, pornography, catch-all. Anything that is not sex between one man, one woman, and the confines of a covenant and legal marriage is sexual immorality. The second on the list is impurity. Now impurity relates more to the uncleanness that comes from sexual immorality. How it defiles you. How it pollutes you. How your mind can be polluted by things that are sexually immoral. Not just acting out upon them, but the pollution that comes through your mind. The third thing on the list... Actually, let me give you a verse here, Romans 1.24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The lust of their hearts, impurity. Now, the third on the list here is sensuality. This is unbridled, reckless sexual activity, no holds barred. Actually, in the original language, this word was often used to talk about a dog in heat, just unbridled sexual immorality. Listen to the prophet Jeremiah and what God says to the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 6.15. Jeremiah 6.15, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall at that time that I punish them. They shall be overthrown, says the Lord. God condemns Israel for having this flagrant attitude of abomination. And God says, you've forgotten how to blush. We live in a culture that's forgotten how to blush. Unbridled, sexual immorality, running rampant. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 12, 21. He uses these three terms again that he uses here in Galatians. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who've sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they've practiced. They haven't repented of those things. So I've asked you to examine yourselves this morning in light of the Scripture. I'm going to keep asking that. In light of these sexual sins that the Lord has given us as violations of his will, examine your heart this morning. Are you guilty of any of these types of sins? Again, let me just tell you what the categories are. Sex before marriage. Sex outside of marriage. Homosexual activity. Bisexual activity. Pornography. Immoral conversations. conversations. Dirty jokes, lust in your heart, fantasizing about sex with someone not your spouse, dressing inappropriately to draw attention to your sexuality, over-the-top flirting, and anything else you can probably think of that's not proper sexual relationships between one man and one woman in the covenant confines of a legal marriage. What did Jesus say about lust? Matthew 5:27 through 28. You've heard that it was said, Jesus says this, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, and 5, For this is the will of God. you want to know what God's will is? Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So first category of sins, a large category, is sexual immorality, sexual sins. That's the first category, sins of sexual immorality. Okay, second category of this big list of 15. The second category are sins of pagan idolatry, sins of pagan idolatry. Remember, the Galatian church is being infected by a Greek culture of paganism, gods and goddesses and Zeus and Hermes and Apollos and Diana and all these these Greek gods and goddesses. And so the, the, the one that he has there starts in verse 20, idolatry. That word literally in the Greek means to bow down and worship an idol. Idolatry, worshiping of an idol. Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. You know this. This is how the Ten Commandments begins. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, the next word is interesting. I'm not sure what your translation says. The ESV says sorcery, yours may say witchcraft. It's where we get our word pharmacy, it involves magic with drugs. It's actually an abuse of drugs. In those ancient cultures, they would use drugs as hallucinogens in their pagan practices to get closer to the gods. And also, they used abortifacient drugs to basically abort their children as well. So anything related to witchcraft is an ungodly use of drugs for the purpose of pagan worship or abortive practices. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 6. If a person turns to mediums and necromancers whoring after them, I will set my face against that person, and I will cut him off from among his people. Revelation 9.21. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now you may think to yourself, this is pretty extreme. I'm not an idol worshiper, and I don't abuse drugs, so I'm good. Well, praise the Lord. I'm glad you don't do that. But I want you to think about idolatry for a moment. You may not be bowing down to a statue, but anything that you have elevated in your heart, in your life, in your mind, above Jesus is an idol. Whatever gives you purpose, whatever gives you meaning, whatever gives you security, whatever gives you comfort, whatever you find your mind drawn to, whatever you fantasize about, whatever you daydream about, whatever you value, whatever you consume, whatever consumes your thoughts and your mind, that's your idol. And we may be guilty of idolatry. So evaluate yourself. Okay, so first big category, sins of sexual immorality. Second category, sins of pagan idolatry. Here's the third category. It's the biggest. It's most on the list. Third category, sins of relational disunity. Person-to-person disunity, okay? I, I find it interesting. This is the longest list, interpersonal relationships. So let's look at these. Enmity. Your translation may say hatred. It's basically a fundamental attitude of hostility and hatred towards another person. You just hate that person in your heart. The next word is strife. Now, strife is a little bit different because strife deals with verbal attacks. That word the original language means more you're, you're using your words verbally to cut others down. Um, it's, it's verbal assaults on people. Proverbs 18.6. A fool's lips walk into a fight, and his mouth invites a beating. <laughs> That's a great proverb. Have you ever thought about that before? How many of your mouths have invited a beating because of the way that you've talked to somebody else? 1 Corinthians 3.3. 3, for you're still of the flesh, for while there's jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So verbal conflicts. Now the next word's jealousy. It's a very strong word in English language, it's the original language. It's the Greek word zealous. We get our word zealously from it. it, it it's a, it's an, you burn inwardly with this intense jealousy. I'm burning with jealousy. Jealous to the point that it's, it's, it's eating me up. Okay, next on the list, you have fits of anger. These are literally when you outburst and fly off the handle and you, ex- you explode with wrath and fury and anger. You're out of control. Colossians 3 8 uses this word, wrath, the same word. But, when, but you must now put them all away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth, flying off the handle. Okay, rivalries. This is the word selfish ambition. You're always wanting to be better than somebody else. You're always wanting to be bigger and better. You want to be the top dog. And you will climb the ladder, and you will climb over as many people that you have to with bodies strewn behind you to make sure you're on the top. You are selfish, you are self-seeking, and you've got rivalries. I don't like that that other person is better than me, so I've got to be better. I've always got to be the one that's right. Right? That's what rivalries are. Romans chapter 2, verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, self-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Okay, the next is dissensions. Breaking up into factions. Romans 16, 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Okay, so divisions, distractions, dissensions, causing problems. The next word's divisions. You may like, well, how is divisions differently? Here's an interesting word divisions. It's where we get our word heresy, it's the Greek word for heresy. It's a person who causes divisions, especially related to doctrine. You're causing doctrinal divisions. It could be attitudinal. It could be in the way that you go about trying to divide up the church. But basically, through gossip, through slander, through disunity, you're trying to divide people, divide the church. 1 Timothy 6, 3-4. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for what? Controversy. And for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions. And Titus 3.10 says this, As for a person who stirs up divisions after warning him once and then twice have nothing to do with him. You warn a person. And you warn him a second time. And then sometimes you just have to avoid them. Because they're causing so many problems. Okay, the next word is envy. Now this is a different word than jealousy. Jealousy means to burn with like this jealous rage, envy means you wish ill upon somebody because of what they have and you don't have. So you think things like, man, I wish they'd lose their job. I wish they'd get sick. I wish they'd fall off a cliff and die. I mean, whatever you, you say in your head, you're wishing ill on that person because you don't have what they have and you want it. It's, you're envious. And James says this in James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Okay, there's that Galatians 5, 17. Aren't your passions at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Okay, so let's examine ourselves on this list. Sins of relational disunity. Just think about these things for a minute. Do you have a root of bitterness in your heart where you're finding it very difficult to forgive somebody? Have you said, I can never forgive that person? Or maybe you're gossiping behind somebody's back or you're backstabbing or maybe you're just causing trouble. You're causing division. You're causing disunity. You have your own selfish agenda. You have your your pettiness that you're elevating and you just want to get your way and you're causing problems. Or maybe other people have to walk on eggshells around you because you're about ready to blow up and explode. Fits of anger. Okay, what's the last grouping of this list of 15 sins? Well, the fourth There's two sins, sins of excessive debauchery, excessiveness, debauchery, revelry. Okay, so what are the last two on the list? Drunkenness, okay? Now, the Bible does not prohibit drinking alcohol per se. What the Bible prohibits is getting drunk, getting intoxicated, getting inebriated, Romans 13, 13 says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. It's interesting how that passage of Scripture ties all these things together. Ephesians five eighteen, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay. The last on the list is orgies. Now, in that culture, they had uh, trade guilds where if you were part of like the plumber guild or the pottery guild or, or, or maybe you were like the artisans, you would have to go to a party in honor of one of the Greek gods and goddesses, usually Bacchus or Dionysius, and you would have a drinking party where you would drink to the god and that drinking would lead to illicit sex where everybody was having sex with everybody in an orgy. And so basically it's just unbridled sex under the influence of intoxication. Ephesians 4, 17 through 19. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up. What have they given themselves up to? Sensuality. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Then 1 Peter 4.3, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Again, evaluate yourself in light of this list. Now, interesting, what does Paul say? And things like these. It's not an exhaustive list. It's a representative list of all the types of sins that you could be committing that are works of the flesh. So you have sins that are... Sexual immorality, pagan idolatry, relational disunity, excessive debauchery. Okay, so what have we seen so far? Number one, big ticket, we've seen the stark reality of works of the flesh. They're evident. Number two, we've seen the sinister list. But let's look at number three. We see the severe warning of sin. Look at verse 21. The very end, after he lists all of these, I warn you, as I warned you before. That's a very strong original language. I'm giving you a warning. There is danger in your future with serious consequences if you give into this. I warn you. If you continue in habitual and unrepentant sin, you're not getting to heaven. Look at what Paul says there. Look at that with your own eyes. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's that's heaven. Will not go to heaven. Will not inherit eternal life. Now, I need to explain this because you may be confused. What happens if I do something on this list? Does that mean I'm not going to heaven? What did Paul say in verse 17? You're going to struggle. He's not talking about those who struggle with sins. Let me tell you why the original language is very important here. Those who do. Look in your Bible. Your your, your Bible may say practice. Literally in the Greek, it's those who practice as a habit. It's also in the present tense. So you could translate it, those who continually as a habit, as a lifestyle, practice these things. It doesn't mean this is a lapse Like a one-time lapse where you as a Christian just fell into temptation one time. It's not Christians who from time to time may commit these sins, but you know that they're wrong and the Holy Spirit brings conviction and you want to walk in truth and you know you've grieved the Spirit. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a person for whom the totality of their life is dominated by these things. They make it their practice. It's their habitual lifestyle. They're not walking with the Spirit, they're walking according to the flesh. In other words, it's what ultimately defines them. So if you're a true Christian, you're going to struggle with these works of the flesh, okay? You're going to struggle with them. But they are not ultimately going to dominate you and define you, and they're not going to be the pattern of your life. They're not going to be the habitual practice of your life. They're not going to ultimately define you. Doesn't mean you're never going to struggle with them. It just means they're not going to ultimately define you as the totality of who you are. Now, there's two other places where Paul gives a strong warning. Okay? We need to be very careful that we listen to this. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same language there. Do not be deceived. And Paul's going to give a similar list. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. He says it twice. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Notice Paul says, that's who you were. You were those things. Those things defined who you were before salvation. But you've been washed. You've been justified. You've been cleansed. That's not your identity anymore. Doesn't mean you're never going to struggle. But it doesn't define you. It doesn't dominate you. It doesn't ultimately identify you. That's who you were. Ephesians 5, 5-6. through For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure... Or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Okay, Paul said it in three places: Galatians, First Corinthians, and Ephesians. And then Revelation tells us the same thing, Revelation 21:8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. It's a very strong warning. You can't soften the blow, and it's not very politically correct. So why is it here? It's not to it's not geared towards true believers to despair that somehow you're not going to make heaven if you struggle with sin. That's not the point. Paul's already told us in verse 17, you're going to struggle. This warning is for complacent hypocrites who think they're saved and are living in sin and they're not repenting. It's a habitual, ongoing lifestyle. You see, the purpose of this list is for us as Christians to say, look, this is a hideous list of sins. These are works of the flesh. I need to repent. I need to repent. I need need to have these exposed to me. And when they're exposed to me, when when they're shown to me for what they truly are, my first gut reaction through the Holy Spirit is to repent. I don't like these things. I hate these things. I don't want them on my life. I, I, I want them out of my life. I want to repent. A truly lost person will not repent. They won't repent. A lost person until God grants them that repentance. But a lost person will continue in habitual, unrepentant sin because that's their nature, and it defines who they are. They will not repent. And they're not ultimately going to be bothered by these works of the flesh. Like I said last week, a non-Christian doesn't struggle with sin because they don't have the Holy Spirit with them. You as a Christian are going to struggle. You're not going to like those works of the flesh. You're going you're to be convicted, and you're going to repent. You're going to walk by the Spirit. You're going to want to repent. Think about this for a moment. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed. Pretty two big sins, right? Adultery, murder? Those are pretty big, right? Peter denied Jesus three times. Pretty big, right? But did David's sin and Peter's sin define those men or did they repent? David repented. Peter repented. They're not defined by their sin. They were men after God's own heart who repented because they were broken over that sin. There's none of us that's not guilty. Look at the list. You would be foolish to say, I have never done any of those things. All of us here have done those things. Maybe not acted out upon them, but in our hearts. And so the the issue is not if you're a true Christian, you better watch out. You're not going to heaven if you've done these things. That's not the issue. The issue is if you're a Christian, you're going to struggle with these things and you're going to repent. But if you're not a Christian and you think you are or you're faking it and you're living in unrepentance and this is your lifestyle, you are in danger of not making it to heaven. Because Paul says, if you make this a practice, if you continually do this as a lifestyle, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think that happens for a true believer because a true believer does not make it their practice, does not make it their lifestyle. You will repent. The Holy Spirit will bring conviction. You will grieve the Spirit and you will want to change and you will walk with the Spirit. doesn't mean you won't struggle. So here's the hope. I don't know about you, But when I look at this list, I get a little overwhelmed because I think, okay, I've done that one, done that one in my mind. You can look at the list and say, okay, yeah, guilty. So what do you need to do? You come daily to Jesus for two things. What are the two things Jesus can give you? He can give you cleansing and he can give you power. What do you need in this battle? You need cleansing because the sin does pollute you. And you come to him and you ask forgiveness. Listen to what 1 John 1, 8, 9 says. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Would it be terrible news if we confess our sins, Jesus holds us against us and says, You go work it out yourself. That would not be good news. For the Christian, if you commit these works of the flesh, what do you do? You don't run from Jesus. You run to Jesus, and you confess. And what does Jesus promise to do when you confess? He will cleanse you. And not only will he cleanse you, but he'll give you power. He will give you power through the Holy Spirit to walk and step with the Spirit. He'll give you the strength to say no to, to temptation. So here's the issue. Jesus stands ready, willing, and able with arms open wide to forgive, cleanse, and strengthen you when you come to him in repentance. So as believers, we need to rest in that grace. Now, you need to be realistic. You're going to struggle, but that struggle is not going to ultimately define you. Jesus ultimately defines you. And you won't make it the habitual practice of your life. Jesus will get you to the finish line. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Supper is a wonderful means of grace to remind us of forgiveness. When we take the elements of the Lord's Supper this morning, when we take the bread and the cup, what we're saying is, I need Jesus. I didn't need him just when I got saved. I need him today. Who needs Jesus today? Who needs Jesus right now? The Lord's Supper is a way for us to visually and by taking it into our bodies, remind ourselves, I need Jesus. I need him to cleanse me, and I need him to give me power. Now, there's nothing magical in the elements when you take him. It's not like you're infused with power, but it's a reminder that Christ meets us at his table and gives us the strength and the cleansing and the forgiveness to walk and step with the Spirit. So as we take the Lord's Supper this morning, let it be a wonderful opportunity for us to confess sin and hear the promise that Jesus meets us at that point of confession, and he cleanses us, and he forgives us. Don't run from Jesus, run to Jesus, and you'll find his arms open wide. He's ready to forgive. He's ready to cleanse. He's ready to meet you at your point of need and most specifically and powerfully in his supper that he's providing for us this morning. So let me ask you to bow your heads, and let's get prepared to go to Jesus in the Lord's Supper to remind ourselves of the cleansing and forgiveness that he alone can give us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you that you have given us the wonderful promise that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us all our sins and cleanse us from unrighteousness. Lord, we count on you because you're faithful. You're faithful to do it. And Lord, I don't know about anybody else in this room, but I know my own heart that I need cleansing this morning. I need power this morning. I need the reminder to know that this struggle is real, that we battle with the flesh, but it doesn't define who I am. My identity is in you, Jesus. My righteousness is in you. My sanctification is in you. My eternal life is in you. And these sins do not define me. May I come to you today for cleansing, for power, for grace. To be able to say no to these works of the flesh and to walk in the Spirit. May this be true for all of us this morning when we ask this in Jesus' name.